Welcome. You are listening to the Conservation Stories Podcast, connecting listeners to nature through inspirational personal narratives from diverse voices in conservation. This is Robert Rose, and I am a conservation geographer and the executive director of the Institute for Integrative Conservation at William & Mary. And this is John Swaddle. We are coming to you today from the campus of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. This season consists of stories, insights, and ideas from three engaging women working in conservation. We hope that sharing their stories helps to raise awareness of the need for gender equity and to promote actions that break down barriers to ensure that women are represented and involved in decision-making in all levels of conservation. And this is Ann Turner, your host for Trailblazing Women in Conservation. And I am a 2022 William & Mary graduate. For this episode, I spoke with Christine Wilkinson, a conservation biologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Berkeley. She has a focus in mammalogy and human-hyena conflicts, but also has a background in multidisciplinary mapping, carnivore movement ecology, and participatory methods. Additionally, she is a co-founder of Black Mammalogist Week, which provides opportunities for current and aspiring Black mammalogists and highlights historical and present-day Black contributions to the field. Christine received her bachelor's degree in applied ecology from Cornell, and she received her PhD from Berkeley. I am so glad that she could join me. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we'll go ahead and just jump right in. So what motivated you to start working in conservation? Yeah, um, it's, it's hard to pinpoint a time, but when I was a kid growing up in Queens in New York, I was actually chasing around like squirrels and cockroaches and cicadas and all sorts of other urban wildlife. And um, I would even bring cicadas to the dinner table, much to my mom's frustration. So I really knew I wanted to work with animals from a really young age. And I would also watch, um, you know, those conservation TV shows with people like Jeff Corwin and Steve Irwin and wonder how I, who's, you know, I'm a queer woman and a person of color, could be like those people, but I didn't really see anyone who looked like me on TV, but I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to figure out how to work with wildlife. So eventually I had the opportunity to do some marine biology field work and research for the first time under an NSF grant um, beginning in the summer before I started college. So the doors, there's like lots of doors that that program opened up for me. I also had a really wonderful mentor named Myra Shulman at Cornell who kind of propelled me into the career that I have now. And I really don't know what I would be doing without those opportunities. I got, I feel like I was very fortunate to have them. Um, then they were of course targeted toward, you know, historically minoritized groups. So that's kind of what boosted me into the career that I am today when I before I had no idea how to get there. Yeah. I've heard really great things about that program. Yeah, for sure. It's really changed my life. So only about 30.8% of the conservation field as a whole identifies as female. So I was wondering if you notice gender inequities in the conservation profession. Um, I do. So I would say in particular with wildlife related career paths. So for example, you know, in the U.S., our academic wildlife research programs often come from this historical forestry or other types of harvest or agricultural programs. Um, maybe in programs tied back to hunting, et cetera. 
So all of those, at least in the U.S., have been historically dominated by white men in particular. So there's something like 60 to 70 percent men in the wildlife profession compared to women. Um, But I think, you know, fortunately, women are are increasingly common in these fields. I've even seen it just in my like little over a decade working in conservation. Um, But even I've been often in rooms that are just filled with colleagues that are mostly male or mostly white and male. Um, So, yeah, I definitely have noticed some inequities myself. So even though we are starting to see more women in conservation, they are predominantly seen in more entry-level positions, while upper-level titles like CEO or project manager are still male-dominated. So I was wondering if you could think of any systemic barriers that might be challenging women from being seen in all levels of conservation? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it all goes back to, I mean, I'm speaking to the U.S., of course, but it all goes back to these fundamental roots of U.S. style conservation, right? You have like the two styles of conservation, the European style and the U.S. style. And the U.S. style has all of its historical roots in hunting and in harvest and in forestry and ag. And those have like these old boys clubs associated with them. Um, And a lot of that is, you know, I would say like the two pillars, maybe two or three pillars of conservation historically were wildlife, forests, and maybe fish, right? And all of those, you know, have these older white men. And then if you look at, you know, you'll go to any wildlife or conservation conference in the U.S. and you'll see that it's kind of skewed a little bit older and a little bit wider, especially if you're inviting people from the state agencies and that kind of thing that are especially in that kind of old boys club. Um, So I do think that conservation, because of its special history, does have that um, gender inequity. Um, But I I definitely don't think it's it's alone in that. So have you personally experienced gender inequity during your career? You know, I think I've been pretty fortunate. Um, I have experienced a few things that that I could pull up out of my memory. You know, there have been spaces, as I said, here in the U.S. that I felt like I'm a minority, not just, you know, as far as my gender goes, but also as far as being a queer woman of color. Um, But there have been a few times where I've definitely thought I've noticed that my thoughts aren't being listened to or respected despite my experience in the field. And that's not just in the U.S., but also in my work in East Africa and other places. Um, You know, I feel like the more that you find yourself in a room or in a space or in a maybe in a region where there are a lot of um, those holdovers of kind of the patriarchal way of looking at things, you'll find it that it's a little bit harder to kind of claw your way up to having people see your merit for what it is versus, you know, who's saying the things, which is me. So I feel like in some of those cases, I've been able to earn that respect over time just by being, you know, consistently an expert in whatever I'm doing um, or be able to convince people of my merit, but it, it can be tiring. I do though. I really do think that I've been really fortunate because I have been able to take advantage of a lot of those opportunities that are tailored for folks from historically minoritized backgrounds. And that's why I think those programs are particularly important because you don't necessarily have to expend as much energy as you would in your average space. Um, But, you know, there aren't enough of those. So I have been in those spaces where I've faced those issues for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So with maybe some of these barriers that you have encountered, was there anything specific that you have done to navigate or overcome them? Yeah, honestly, you know, 
the ones that stick with me the most are like the more, you know, wild, tangible stories where I've had to like be like almost figuratively shaking the person to be like, hey, we need to do what I'm saying right now, um, which are more, those are a little bit more rare. You know, an example would be um, when I was collaring some hyenas and I knew exactly what we needed to do in order to capture this hyena and collar it. It was very skittish. I'd spent months and months and months like studying this particular hyena clan. I had a car that the hyenas were habituated to. And I knew that they were running away from the vets, the vet who had the like blowgun kind of thing um, car because they used to be chased after with those exact types of vehicles and shot for bounties. And I knew that that was what, one of the reasons why it was so difficult to get that hyena. And so I spent you know, almost a full day of like sort of wasting our time convincing this person to eventually get into my car and work with me on just me and him, like triangulating this individual hyena and and capturing it. And it worked. Um, And so I don't know, it kind of ended up just taking a lot of convincing and and getting to a point of desperation when night was going to fall for him to finally get in. But I think that those kinds of situations are almost easier, you know, like to deal with that they're more rare, they're more tangible, they're in your face. Um, I think that something that's harder to deal with is, you know, the the microaggressions that you face or the gatekeeping that's like a little bit more intangible or more nuanced. And the ways that I've faced that, um, I think I'm really good at being very straightforward and direct with people in communication. And um, at the same time, very good with navigating like words and the way that I phrase things. And I think that I'm fortunate in that way. And not every woman or person from a minoritized background has that experience or that ability to navigate situations that way. So I know that getting myself out of sticky situations or getting myself out of weird microaggression situations is a skill that I have that I'm lucky to have um, that I've definitely used a lot. Yeah, it's definitely important to grow these skills like over the course of somebody's career. So looking back, is there anything that you would tell your younger self? I would say I've been pretty bullheaded about just like forging my path, but I would say keep taking advantage of all of the opportunities that you can and don't be afraid to reach out to people that are doing the things that you're interested in or that you admire and asking them how they got there and if you can work with them and what you can do to move forward in your passions. And I also feel like I, you know, I definitely had those moments where I was like, I'll never be like this because like, I'm not an Australian white dude, you know, like, but I would say, you know, don't be afraid that you don't see people who look like you around. You're going to pave your own way and end up being an example and an advocate for others um, regardless. So, you know, but there's a little bit of a caveat there. I feel like it's not, it's unfortunate that we have to expend this extra energy and effort kind of making these things happen for ourselves in a way that other folks who are a little bit more advantaged don't have to. So in that way, it's like telling my younger self not to be afraid is a little bit unrealistic because a lot of people are afraid and maybe even should be afraid because places are dangerous for them or spaces aren't welcoming to them. And that's also okay. You know, it's more about connecting with people that want to boost you up. Yeah. So you mentioned that it's hard to get into a space without seeing a person that looks like you. There's not a lot of women in conservation as a whole, but there's definitely less women that identify with being a person of color. Do you feel that gender inequities influence women with varying ethnic and racial backgrounds differently? 
Definitely. I mean, just like any other field, right? Systemic racism has made it so that white women, while also historically marginalized in comparison to white men, still have a lot more opportunities and less gatekeeping to face than women from minoritized backgrounds. And they can also be part of the problem in a lot of these situations as well. Um, you know, but that doesn't mean that women of color aren't out there. Like all of these initiatives last year that started up, including the one that we created, Black Mimologists Week, and also others like Black Environment Week, et cetera, have shown us that there are a lot of women of color out there in these fields who want to connect and tap in and might not necessarily be getting like that airtime that they need or in those positions of power that other folks are in yet. Um, so it's, it's building, right. It's percolating up. There are a lot of people there. Um, and you know, these, these like weeks that we hosted last year and sometimes a few of them this year as well have really shown like, just like what that base of women of color looks like and how vast it is. And so it's pretty encouraging. Yeah, I saw that you were the co-founder of the Black Mammologist Week. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your experience creating that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Black Mammologist Week was co-founded by me and Rainan Kirtan and Raywin Grant. And the, we wanted to, um, Ree and I were interested in making it happen for a little bit. But then this kind of catalyst happened where we saw a Nat Geo article that named my friend Ray as being... Um, the only African-American female large carnivore ecologist in the world is what it said, which is not true. You know, there were, there's me, there's someone named Naima Harris. There are several others. There are probably many that we don't know of yet. Um, and I saw that in the article and I wasn't really like miffed, like, oh, I'm not being seen here. It was more like, we don't want to be the first anymore, right? Like we want to, we want to be like one of many in the community of these people. And since we're out there and we're not connecting with one another, we wanted to make Black Mimologist Week to be able to kind of tap into all of those people out there who are not getting the airtime, who are not known to each other and be able to build a stronger community and kind of boost one another up as well as bringing up the youth, right? We started a scholarship that we're going to start rolling out later this year for um, people of color and indigenous folks to be able to do internships and that kind of thing and get money um, to tap into the wildlife field and into the mammalogy field and all these other ways of trying to, you know, as you said, um, foster that mentorship and that community building in the field for women of color and other folks of color. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's really interesting how you said that, like, we don't want to be the first anymore, because I'm pretty sure every woman that I've interviewed so far for this podcast has been like, yeah, I am the first at X, Y, or Z. Yeah. And I think like, you know, being the first has its merits, right? Like it's important to like announce like this is what's happening, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, if I was a young black woman right now, figuring out what career I wanted to go into and knowing that I want to work with large carnivores and I see something that says so-and-so is the only this, I would be like, well, that's impossible. Like, I don't know if I could do that. It must be really hard, you know? And so in some ways it has its detriments to not be able to have a large community of the people doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm tired of firsts. I'm tired of building our, you know, our brands around being the first this and the first that, like, I want us to be a community of people who encourage other people to do the same things as us and not want to be the first anymore. That's like, 
that would that's my dream basically yeah and like what you've done with black mammologist week is a great way to help create visibility but what else do you think might be needed to break down barriers to more women joining and advancing in the field of conservation yeah i mean i think there as i said there need to be a lot more women in the conservation field telling their stories publicly about how they got to where they are and making their journeys you know, more tangible and, and able to be followed, you know, we're all building on those who came before us. So representation really matters. But I also think that there are some very like logistical things that can be put into place. So, you know, the U.S. has a really abysmal family planning. Um, what do you call it? You know, policies in our workforce generally um, and family leave support. So those things need to be adjusted logistically and financially to allow women to not drop out of the workforce before they get to these higher positions. Um, they're, you know, along the same lines, there needs to be less stigma about pregnancy and careers in this particular field where you're in the field doing research or whatever often. Um, I think that's improving though. I'm seeing a lot of folks like sharing their child experiences while they're also still doing research. So that's encouraging. Um, this one is the next one is really dear to my heart. I feel like in academia, we need to be prioritizing and valuing mentorship for achieving tenure and maintaining, you know, employed positions in general, you know, because right now it's all about your publications and that kind of thing. And we say like teaching is important. Mentorship is important. Volunteering in the department is important, but there's no numerical importance to it. It doesn't come up in your tenure review at all. Um, so it's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is and, and making that so that it actually has some sort of importance to it that, that has a weight, um, that eventually comes back to you later on. And then I also think that we should be writing and holding ourselves accountable to kind of tangible, smart goals and strategies for what types of representation we want to see in our departments and in our jobs. Um, because we often will say we want more women. We want more people of color. And then what happens? Like there's no way to strategize and actually hold yourself accountable to that. Um, I think that's also slowly changing, but it's still a lot of hand-waving, you know? And I think that that's like, we need those, those sort of logistical and very targeted strategies to be able to keep women and also people of color in the field into these higher positions. Maybe trying to think about some of those strategies. Have you encountered anything in like either your past workplaces or maybe places of education that have had some sort of strategies that you thought were helpful? Yeah. So actually um, here in the department I'm in now, which is at UC Berkeley, Environmental Science Policy and Management, over the past two or three years, the department developed their um, strategy for increasing representation, their kind of like DEI strategy. Um, and after, you know, it was through a lot of feedback from grad students and from faculty. So it was very community co-created. And now they have this list of goals and strategy, you know, kind of these, these semi-smart goals and strategies for um, that, that do include some numbers and percentages for once, because often these, these documents don't have them um, to try and increase representation in the department. Um, and actually... And they've done a couple other things too. Like they've taken away um, 
GRE as something that's required because there's been a lot of studies showing that the GRE isn't super useful and it can exclude people. Um, they've included in the grad student application process a uh, in your personal statement, you have to include something about how you are contributing to DEI efforts. And like, there's a whole detailed thing you have to respond to about that. So, you know, in those blind reviews, you're now reading something about what this person is doing for DEI or what their own personal experience has brought them to from those perspectives. Whereas before, even just two years ago, we didn't have that. So I've already seen that the, um, in, at least in this cohort, maybe in the last cohort, there has been a, a, a much wider variety of types of people in this grad cohort. Um, the place where they really need to do work, and again, this does have to do with the whole tenure thing I was talking about and like the, what they're prioritizing for these um, professorships is bringing in, um, I'd say they're doing well on the women front in my department, but not on the people of color front. Like the person I'm working with now is one of a very small handful of people of color as professors in the department. So um, I think that that's something that they're working on, but it also, at, you know, there's only so much you can do at the department level with that kind of thing. Um, but it's, it's still encouraging to see that there's this um, set of semi-smart goals associated with those. So that's a good example. I remember that you mentioned earlier that you've noticed conservation become more inclusive. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a little more. Yeah. Um, so I started my career as a conservation biologist in 2007. Fortunately, I was recruited for a program for students of minoritized backgrounds to gain field research experience. Um, and nearly everyone else on that island that I was on doing research or classes that summer was white. And many of them were also male. And nearly all of my instructors at Cornell in undergrad self-identified as male. So if my grad school experiences any indication that skew is definitely shifting to be more balanced, I mean, I have my own experience, right? So can't tell you how it looks in other parts of the country, right? Like I'm in the Bay Area. We know it's a bubble, a liberal bubble at that. Um, but, you know, my current department has a lot of faculty that self-identify as women, which is really nice to see. I've definitely been in many, many classes with women as the professors and my advisors, like just an amazing very powerful woman in the department. And, and I love that. And, um, you know, as I said, like we're sorely lacking at the bringing people of color thing. And so I feel like that's, I think that last year, all of the black birders week, all those different weeks has kind of sh shown a light on that issue, you know, on that representation issue around this country. Um, but I think that it's, it's slow going, right? Um, and there's all of, I could, we all know all of the systemic issues for why that particular aspect is really slow going. Um, because no matter how much, say, my department lowers those barriers to folks getting in to the department, you can't change like all of the histories of structural issues in this country just by changing your set of barriers. So it's going to take like a massive see change in order to really get us to where we need to be um, as far as representation, I think. Yeah. Well, you've spoken on what organizations that you've been a part of and some of their strategies to getting more women into conservation, but do you have any specific recommendations that might help encourage more women to enter the profession? Yeah. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about mentorship. I think that mentorship is super important. We should be 
providing, you know, not just facilitating mentorship or making these mentors more public and available and showing who they are, but also like giving money toward mentorship, like giving, making more grants available for people to get these internship or other mentorship opportunities from a young age, because it's, you know, all of those studies showing that girls kind of drop away from STEM pretty early on, if they're going to drop away from STEM because of all of these stereotypes and all these other things that they face when they're young, that they lose confidence over time. And there's just like infinite, very depressing studies about that and like about what that looks like in the classroom, et cetera, et cetera. So if we are kind of funding these programs that are just for girls and, you know, women identified folks, then you're going to be able to kind of take away all of those distractors and be able to have these folks focus on science and focus on conservation um, in a space that's dedicated to that. And there are so many great examples of this happening, but I still don't think that there are enough. Um, I think that you can have a lot of well-meaning people who want to be mentors or who want to support these efforts of representation in the field. But if they don't have money to support themselves while doing that, then it's never going to sustain itself. Um, and that, you know, that's just one example. Like on top of all that, I would say the thing about family planning, the thing about, you know, tenure priorities and smart goals, but also, you know, once you actually get into these fields and you were saying that, you know, women are kind of dropping out before these, these higher positions, I really think that what we need, and this is, would be helpful for a lot of different reasons, not just the representation reason. But I think that assuring that there can be blind reviews from employees to managers is really, really important for so many reasons, like not just for representation reasons, but for just like abusive manager reasons, which happens in many, many sectors, not just conservation. And if you are not able to have a safe space for reviewing your manager or for having some sort of mitigation or mediation, that kind of thing, if you're having issues with your team because of your own identity, then you're going to eventually either get fired for something unreasonable or lose the energy to keep fighting for that position. And that's, I think, what happens a lot of the time for people. They're just tired of the microaggressions or, or the hardships that they're facing in the workplace. So if we can take away those and allow for those feedbacks, I think that'd be really helpful. So I was wondering if we improved the gender equity in conservation, what kind of benefits do you think that we would see for the profession and just conservation in general? Um, yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, several studies have shown that diversity of thought and representation generally um, does improve the body of work coming out of all scientific sectors. And there's been quite a few of those studies, especially last year. So essentially what we're seeing is that a diverse group of scientists means a diverse group of ideas and better, more robust science. And so with conservation in particular, I think we can, we, we can take that into account, but we can also extend that a lot further. So I think that we need representation and inclusivity in conservation because in the end, conservation is all about people and their relationships to the land and the environment. So if we're talking about gender, which is, you know, women are half of the world or so, if they feel truly involved and connected to conservation and the environment in general, then we're going to have much better conservation outcomes over time. And the same also goes for other types of diversity. So involving historically marginalized communities and assuring that they have these leadership roles in conservation 
is what makes ground up and meaningful and lasting conservation happen in those communities around the world. Um, and, you know, as you said in your question, conservation is one of those fields that's just, it's going to impact how we live for the rest of our lives and how the, the rest of, how we relate to the rest of the world. So if we're not involving everyone, then it's almost like, what's the point of trying? Yeah, exactly. So that is almost all the questions that I have for you today. But before we wrap up, is there anything else important to this discussion that you would like to add that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I feel like um, it's, I feel like there's a lot of things to be not so happy about as far as representation in the U.S. and otherwise. But I feel like the U.S. has been doing a pretty good job of slowly working toward gender equity, at least in this field, to some extent, right? It's a slow, slow moving train, but the trends are, are going up a little bit. If you look at the wildlife professions and at some of the other conservation professions as well, like those, those percentages are changing. Um, something that I feel like we, we don't talk about enough is a lot of us in the conservation world collaborate with people in other parts of the world um, that are dealing with a lot harsher issues than we are as far as gender inequity. Um, you know, the colleagues that I work with in Kenya, I've been fortunate to work with, you know, a few women who are working in conservation and maybe one or two of them at the higher levels of conservation, but you really, really don't see it as much as you should. Um, and there are a lot of really intelligent, really passionate conservationists out there who are women in among our collaborators that I feel like we're, we're not really talking about. They're, we're not providing opportunities to boost them up. Um, and it's something that I at least feel a little bit helpless about. So I think that the conversations about how global gender inequity is or is not coming to be in the conservation field, um, not just in the US, is something that we're not talking about as much and maybe should have some resources devoted to. Yeah, I think that's definitely great. I mean, even if the US is moving in a better direction, it's still a very small part of this global community that we have. So it is important to keep creating conversations about gender inequity all over the world and not just in this one country. Right. And also I feel like, you know, a lot of our um, gender equity work that we do in the U S you know, we have these huge organizations and NGOs that are working on these issues can be carried over to the professional sphere in other countries, since we all have these collaborators in other countries. And I feel like there's some connections there that maybe we're not making yet or not enough. Yeah, for sure. So just to leave this episode off on a positive note, what is one thing that you're hopeful for or looking forward to in the future? Um, I'm really hopeful for, you know, the fact that we, I feel like a lot of the issues, the systemic issues in the U.S., both with uh, gender inequity, but also racial inequity, have kind of been uncovered, right? There, We've reached a point where I feel like, unless you're really living under a rock, you know generally that there's some systemic problems and you've heard about a few of them and you know that you know folks from certain racial racial and ethnic backgrounds or women are facing these issues around the country so we've reached this point where people i feel 
are denying it a little bit less and kind of acknowledging it as a thing, even if they feel powerless. And our next step now that everything is kind of seeing the light is to be able to move forward. And so, as I was saying, like those initiatives last year that were spurred by, you know, various, very horrible events that we know about are showing us that there's a lot of momentum behind making that sea change happen for equity in conservation, but also in other fields and just in general in the U.S. And to me, it's really, really hopeful to be able to have these communities kind of bubbling up and building in these different spheres to try and address inequity. Um, and I, I really do believe that 2020 pretty much kind of shifted that narrative a little bit for us. So I think that's a hopeful thing. Yeah, I would agree. There's definitely a lot of momentum just bubbling underneath the surface. So I think in the next couple of years, we're hopefully going to see a lot of tangible change. Yeah, I hope so. Yep. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to finally meet you. We would like to thank Planet Women and our guests, Jill Tiefenthaler, Nicole Esters, and Christine Wilkinson for making this season possible. And a special thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This episode of the Conservation Stories podcast is produced by Anne Turner and Dorothy Ebis for the William & Mary Institute for Integrative Conservation. To learn more about the IIC, this podcast, or conservation at William & Mary, please visit our website at wm.edu conservation or email us at iic at wm.edu. We look forward to hearing from you soon.